Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Hello and welcome to Torts Illustrated, episode 13. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I'm not your lawyer. I'm actually not even my lawyer, as you'll find out in a minute. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law from old England to today. I am back again, folks, after another little bit of a break here. Um, and like I said in the last episode, this might be sort of every other week for the next chunk of time, maybe about a month or so, because there is a lot going on out here. Um, I, you know, I work. Um, I sang a solo about surviving the nuclear apocalypse in Des Moines during a show this week. So, you know, that took a lot out of me. Um, and today I closed on my very first condo. So I am now a homeowner. Uh, despite being a real estate lawyer, I did actually hire myself a lawyer for my closing, and she was very good at her job. So just going back to my always statement for this podcast, I am practicing what I preach. Seriously, if you need a lawyer, hire a lawyer. Now, in the spirit of lightening the mood today from people horribly murdering their spouses, I thought that this week we could talk about something kind of crazy. Sovereign citizens who are equally as weird and wacky as the cultists that we've talked about, but perhaps less harmful. So listen and see if that rings true for you today. Now, the sovereign citizen movement is something that's existed worldwide for quite a while, but we're going to focus mostly on American sovereigns, because I know mostly American law, and because, let's face it, Americans tend to do weird things a little bit weirder than everyone else. If this podcast were set in Denmark... It would probably just be a lot of people shaking hands and agreeing over luxury goods, but we are in America, so, you know, it's what we have. The sovereign citizen movement in the U.S. is based on a good old-fashioned tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. It's very complex, and it's hard to kind of give a short version of it, but I'll try my best. Definitely encourage you to look this up online, because it is one of those Wikipedia rabbit holes that you will fall deep into. So sovereign citizens, at least the most dedicated of them, believe that today's U.S. law is a complete perversion of the system set up by the Founding Fathers, and is actually something new based mostly on admiralty law, or laws of ships and, and seafaring. They argue that under the true U.S. government system as it was intended to function, they would be free to govern themselves absent the interaction of the government in any way if they chose to. Not sure how that's a form of government at all, but okay. There's also a weird theory that some of them believe in, based on the changeover from the gold standard, which is when U.S. currency stopped being backed by gold. So basically, paper notes that we use today and coins used to be backed by an actual, you know, U.S. treasury of gold matching, you know, value to value with currency. At a certain point, that became unrealistic, so the gold standard went away. You may have heard of it because, um, what's his name? Um, Ron Paul. Ron Paul was always running on a bring back the gold standard platform, which is bonkers and makes no sense in today's world, but that was something that he used to, to talk about. And sovereign citizens think that when the government switched over from 
backing currency with gold to backing it with what's called the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, they started essentially leasing out citizens as backup for currency. So the idea is that the government is trading on us as citizens, and that's where they loan money from, that's where they get money from. And so they can't really charge us any fines or anything like that, because they're using us to create that very money that they're finding us with. And they think that our birth certificates function as a sort of promissory note or a, a promise to pay a debt. And using those, the U.S. government forms a treasury account for each person using the rights and life of that citizen as backup for currency. Please do not email me asking how on earth that would work, because honestly, I don't understand it myself. Now, most of this information is from the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, which, by the way, is a great source for information on every sect of crazy out there. It's, I imagine the Ku Klux Klan would tell you differently, but it is a pretty unbiased source. They evaluate kind of all sides of any organization that is seen as cultist or, you know, potentially uh, racist or biased in any sort of way. And they're also a legal aid center that does some really great work to fight these organizations. So anyway, as I understand from their site, and I might be reading it wrong because it's so very bizarre, the theory is that on a birth certificate, the names are typed in all caps. And that's, oh, running out of battery here, kids. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. Normally I would edit that out, but at this point I've edited so many times because I keep flubbing these weird theories because they make no sense. So where were we? Okay, birth certificates. The theory is that the names are typed in all caps on birth certificates because it essentially splits you as a person. So the name in all caps on your birth certificate is actually the name of a corporate entity used by the U.S. government to essentially lease you as a person. While the normal kind of sentence case, capital, first letter, lowercase, everything else version of your name is actually you as a person. I guess no one has explained to the sovereign citizens that most states actually don't treat corporation names as case sensitive, but that is far too much logic. Um, and to be fair, I think they do in maybe Minnesota. So maybe they're all just kind of basing it on Minnesota law. Also, don't quote me on Minnesota. That might be the wrong one. So basically, they believe that if they do the right combination of, you know, declaration declarations, declarative sentences, and paperwork and actions, they can essentially separate out their corporate entity from their human entity and live completely outside the rule of the US, U.S. government. So they as a human can do whatever they want to do, and then if they are fined or charged by the U.S. government, the U.S. government is actually charging and fining that corporate entity and not them, so they can't be held liable. Now it's hard to tell how many sovereign citizens exist at the moment. Um, partly because they tend to be very secretive and kind of live outside the grid, and partly because the way that we used to count these was based on estimated numbers of tax protesters, so people who refused to pay their taxes based on the government having no right to tax them. But at a certain point, the federal government passed uh, a federal rule saying that they actually couldn't record that information. I believe it was a, a privacy-based concern. So... I think that the last statistics on that number are from the early 2000s, and they showed about 200,000. Based on some more recent records, it could be as many as 500,000 now. Um, still, most of them fly pretty under the radar 
until, that is, they bump up against the court system. And of course, many of them do, because they object to pretty much every basic government interaction that we have from day to day. Southern Poverty Law Center gave the examples of a traffic ticket or pet licensing. You have to pay money to license your pet. Imagine someone who thinks applying for a parking permit or getting a state ID is a violation of their rights, and you're kind of in the right mindset. And when sovereigns fight the law, they fight hard. Sovereigns tend to enter into long, protracted legal battles, much like Westboro Baptist or Scientology. But for them, part of this is because of the weird language that they adhere to in filing complaints. I remember from you know, reading comics as a kid, and probably from some hackneyed TV shows too, there's this trope of some weird old law that magically solves whatever problem there is in the story. Uh, my parents are uh, foreign, my dad is British, and so we used to get all these British comic annuals. And one I remember really distinctly is this young girl who is trying to save this um, street market where her grandfather and all of his friends sell goods and the city wants to shut it down. And she finds some archaic old law book in a library that has a law that says that the street share fair shall always exist. And, you know, the government agency says, oh, you got us, like this law applies and magically the street fair is saved. And that's the way this trope always plays out is that this law or concept is discovered and bam, all objections are shattered because the magic words got found. Sovereign citizens basically treat the law this way. They think that certain language will magically free them from the reach of the U.S. government, causing the IRS or whatever agency to just shake their fist in the air like a Scooby-Doo villain and walk away without their tax money or permit money. SPLC has a whole dictionary of these words, and they are hilarious, so go look them up. But a few examples. Um, the first one, accepted for value. So accepted for value is a phrase that sovereigns believe is truly a magic phrase, and it's based on some sort of twisted reading of the Uniform Commercial Code. All the lawyers who are listening are probably right now feeling a bit sympathetic to the sovereigns because the UCC is very dense, it's very complicated, and we spend a whole semester studying just one chapter of it. And I guess I can't really blame them for misunderstanding because the UCC confounds me every day, and I work with it every single day. It's an active part of my job. But I'm at least not stupid enough to think that writing accepted for value on a tax bill and sending it back will magically have it paid from my secret government account, meaning I don't have to pay it. Unfortunately, that's what sovereign citizens believe. When they write accepted for value on something and send it back, what they mean is the U.S. government has been using me as backup for currency my whole life, and so I am going to pay this out of my corporate currency that exists, um, not out of my actual money. This is, of course, not a real concept. It's not supported by any laws, and magic words are not magic and do not work. Sorry, kids. I think I may have just done another Santa's Not Real. Another fun one on this is red ink. So this is less of a phrase and more of um, an actual physical thing. And this comes from the fact that in some states, bond documents are canceled using red ink stamps. Notice I said some states because just like capital letters and case sensitivity, this isn't a universal federal thing. This is just random states. But sovereigns believe that signing legal documents in red ink 
effectively cancels the contract that the government has over them in that document. Now, how they think that any government entity is supposed to magically understand this, I don't know. Because whether they've signed in red ink, black ink, or blue ink, the point is that they have signed the document and accepted it. I do sometimes run into situations at work where there will be things that specify must be signed in blue ink, must be signed in black ink. But I think that's really a preference of whoever's document that is. There are some states where um, deeds for property, for example, must be signed in a certain color ink. But for the large part, these are recording requirements. These are not things that change the, you know, the very existence of a document. So signing in red ink has no effect to cancel a document. But somehow sovereigns have gotten this idea in their head. And last one, I swear, although I could do a whole probably five episodes on the weird things they believe, but this one is really interesting. It's the concept of truth language. And truth language is basically the opposite of its name. It's a crazy set of rules meant to mimic the secret language of the law, including certain set, starting sentences with four, um, F-O-R, not the number four, having a minimum of 13 words in each sentence, um, using semicolons to kind of fold sentences back on top of themselves, using antiquated words and Latin words, etc. And as a lawyer, this one is kind of hilarious to me because sometimes the language of contracts does drive me a little bit crazy. There are some useless holdover words that we do still use. I mean, I've seen countless documents that start sentences with the word witnesseth, which I think is just saying that all the parties, you know, agree to whatever is coming after that. But there are a million simpler ways to say that we don't have to use that antiquated word. There are Latin terms that we use that we don't necessarily need to. There are better and simpler ways to say things. And there are a lot of constructions that whether they were intended to be written this way or they ended up this way through a lot of editing and a lot of cooks in the kitchen, Sentences that seem to kind of fold back in on themselves, where it is hard to understand what's happening there. But a lot of this language may read that way, but when you really drill down into it, and this is something I've learned over more years of practicing law, it's complex for a reason. Language is very tricky. Words can mean different things, sentences can mean different things, and there's tone that we use in our spoken speech that doesn't exist in our written speech. And so we lose that level of nuance when we're writing and we have to find a way to compensate for it. The goal with writing a contract for every sentence is ideally to create a sentence that can be read and understood a single way. It's a lofty goal, but there's a reason for shooting for that because when you have someone who breaks the contract, who violates the contract and you end up in court, what you want is to be able to go in front of a judge and say, this contract is read X way. This is the way to understand this sentence. There is no other reasonable way to interpret that sentence. And you want the judge to agree with you. If you write a sentence that's very basic and simple and easy to understand, but could be interpreted three different ways, you're getting yourself in a lot of trouble. So writing these sentences with a single meaning is really difficult to do. And that's why legal contracts tend to have long, complicated sentences. Sentences that state something and then accept out little sections or explain all the ways in which what just happened doesn't apply or has multiple little sub, you know, um, numerates and subsections. They're complicated, but they serve a purpose. 
And sovereigns seem to get that legal language is complicated, but they don't get why. So all they've done is perverted it into incomprehensible gobbledygook, and they see that as sort of a magic formula, that if they use the right, you know, seemingly complex truth language, that the judge again will like a Scooby-Doo villain and be like, ah, you know, you silly kids, you got me, and just throw the case out. Over and over again, they end up putting together what they think are trapdoors or magic words. And the truth is that trapdoors and magic words just don't exist in the law, even sometimes when lawyers pretend they do. I mean, there are plenty of things that we write into contracts, and we being a general, we not we being, you know, particular people or me in particular, but it happens all the time that things are written in and you're not really sure whether a court would enforce it, but all the parties have agreed to it and provided nothing goes wrong, it's fine to have it in there, but there's trial and error. And lawyers are humans, judges are humans, the law is written by humans. It is not a magic process. It's not something that springs from the universe, fully formed and ready to serve as a hammer. It just isn't. And so the whole sovereign citizen mentality is based on this fundamental misunderstanding of how the law works. They see it as magic and hammers instead of words and human interaction and human error. Now, these particular phrases and the truth language and the theoretical legal trapdoors are part of why sovereign citizens are such a drain on the legal system. Ideally, they would just be, you know, kooky people who don't really fit into society and live on their own. But what actually happens is that they often end up filing suit over really stupid things, like, as we discussed, pet licensing fees. There is an actual sovereign citizen case that stretched for years over a pet licensing fee. And that's what happens. These cases stretch into a very long suit because first, reading the complaint in itself is a feat. And because sovereigns will drown the court in paper, appeal after appeal, filing after filing, trying to find that magic form that lets them use state and federal resources like roads, firemen, and police, while owing not a single dime or a single duty to the federal government. Now, the good news is that as the internet and 24 hours news gives us more access into the lives of our nation's weirdos, and the concept of sovereign citizens becomes more well known, courts are getting more and more adept at shutting these kind of things down, both through throwing out the suits brought by sovereign citizens and by giving them you know, legitimate, pretty hard sentences when other government agencies bring suit against them. And that brings us to the case of Sharon Phillips, or as she calls herself, River Tolly Bay. So Phillips actually grew up in the Chicago area, so this is a local case. And she was the high school sweetheart and partner of Nick Anderson, who was an Orlando Magic player. They had some kids together and they never married, but according to Anderson, Phillips, when he knew her when they were younger, used to be a down-to-earth, lovely, organized woman. She was a real estate agent and an insurance broker, and she lived a pretty average life. But it wasn't until the death of her older brother and then the imprisonment of her younger brother for federal drug charges that Phillips kind of started to unravel. During this time, her parents were also arrested for tax evasion, and their filings indicate some nascent sovereign citizen beliefs as well. So this seems to be where her leanings began. One interesting thing about Phillips is that she's African-American. 
Now, normally this wouldn't be an interesting fact for a case, but the traditional sovereign citizen movement can actually be a pretty racist movement. And that's because of an ideology that the 14th Amendment, which ended slavery and freed slaves, um, specifically gives citizenship to freed slaves and yokes them as government citizens. So the idea is that because the Constitution says that freed slaves are citizens, they automatically become subjects to the government and they cannot free themselves like white sovereign citizens can. So it's just another turn on the old, you know, we have decided that we're better. The idea is that white people can live free of the government, but if you are descended from former slaves, you are yoked to the government. But more recently, there's been another sovereign movement that's developed out of the original sovereign movement called Moorish Sovereign Citizens. And they retain most of the original beliefs, but they also believe that African-Americans have special sovereign rights based on a 1780s treaty with Morocco. It's an interesting twist on the movement, and they end up with pretty much the same beliefs, just from different sources. And it's a good reminder that these kind of strange beliefs morph and they change to survive. So Phillips was particularly influenced by uh, Tarj Tariq Bey, who was a leader of the Moorish sovereign movement, and who essentially asserts the original sovereign beliefs minus the racism. She also, it was found out at her trial, uh, used to do a lot of research on sovereigns online, and she spent a fair amount of time in law libraries researching the law, but apparently not really learning how to use it properly. Okay, so remember her younger brother's arrest for drug possession? Well, he was actually given a pretty light sentence, but against the advice of his lawyer, he appealed it, um, and true to the sovereign fuckery that his family was into, he asked on appeal that the court review various filings he had made in the lower court, where he discussed his Moorish faith, the UCC, and various other completely unrelated things. Uh, the court in the appeal rejected his appeal, and they actually admitted that they couldn't make any more sense of his filings than the lower court could. So they essentially said, these are nonsensical, there's no way we can consider them, and they denied the appeal. Now, Sharon Phillips' actual engagement with the movement um, began during Devon's appeal as well. So during his case, she would try to make frequent speeches in the court. She would just stand up in the gallery and, you know, drone on in this kind of truth language, fake legalese until someone stopped her or kicked her out of the courtroom. She also filed countless uh, improper filings that were just totally out of the ordinary and not anything you would normally see in court, um, usually stating that her brother wasn't subject to federal laws. She sent the judge a packet of a bunch of filings, uh, including what sovereigns call a common law bill of indictment, under which she tried to arrest the judge under an imaginary common law. Now, common law is something we talk about a lot, but this is not the common law that we're talking about. Common law, when I'm usually using it, is talking about um, the law that we developed through court precedent. But this is different. This is a made up concept that sovereigns have um, where they believe that because they aren't government citizens, they can basically hold their own trials, um, they can bring charges and arrest uh, people who have wronged them. And that's what she tried to do to the judge. She basically said, you've wronged my brother by charging him because he's a sovereign citizen, and so I arrest you uh, in the sovereign common law. Not a real thing. The judge did not get arrested. Another majorly bad thing that she did 
and this is kind of where she actually runs into some trouble, is that she started filing liens against the people involved in her brother's case. So if I file a lien against someone, I'm basically saying of record that this person owes me money and I'm now a creditor. So for example, uh, mechanics liens are a popular, not popular, nobody likes them, but a common type of lien. Um, which is basically you have someone who comes to do work on a site, um, let's say a contractor on a construction site, and then they don't get paid uh, within the time that they need to be paid under their invoice. They can file a lien of record. And so if you search the property records for that property, it would come up. It's of record so anyone can see it. And it's basically something saying, I have not been paid. I am a creditor uh, to this person. There's a lot of reasons to do it. Part of it is in establishing priority in case they end up bankrupt so that you get paid first and not last. Um, This is not a lesson on liens, but point being that when you do these, they have an impact on the person they're filed against. Um, If they're filed against individuals, they can harm your credit. Um, They can also prevent you from getting financing. Um, So for example, you know, I just bought a condo. They ran my credit. If I had previously owned property and there were liens against it, that really could have been a problem. The bank may not have given me a loan because they wouldn't consider me a worthy investment because I'm someone who has it of record that I don't pay my debts. Now, the problem was that Sharon Phillips wasn't actually owed money by any of the people she was filing liens against. She was just mad at them for her brother's trial. And the liens that she filed were actually maritime liens, which goes back to this sovereign belief that U.S. law is actually admiralty law. Um, So it was as if she was securing debts against commercial ships, um, which is very bizarre considering she wasn't owed money and she did not own any commercial ships. Uh, She actually did this against U.S. Attorney General Patrick Fitzgerald, as well as Chief Justice Holderman and a few other folks involved in the trial. This is crazy, and she was of course caught, And she was charged in federal court uh, for knowingly filing false maritime liens against a dozen current and former federal employees. She was actually charged under a law that was recently passed at the time, um, a federal code provision, preventing retaliation against judges and law enforcement and federal law enforcement officers uh, by making false claims. The interesting thing about this law is that there actually doesn't have to be any harm So if you retaliate, for example, by filing a lien and the person never finds out about it until, you know, you get caught and it never harms their credit and it never influences them in any way, you can still be charged because that's an an act of retaliation. All that you have to do is retaliate in an improper way. You don't have to actually hurt them. Now, similar to her brother's case, Sharon used every sovereign citizen tactic in her case as well. When the judge asked her what her plea was in the case, she responded, I accept for value and return for settlement and closure of this matter. What? What does that mean? It means nothing. That's what it means. Her statements and other documents were similarly crazy. She stated that she, Sharon Phillips, was actually appearing as the representative of her other self, River Tully Bay, and asked for the case against her alter ego to be dismissed. She also claimed the federal government was suing a fiction, since Sharon Phillips doesn't really exist. Sharon Phillips is a government entity, and River Tully Bay is a real person. She signed a bond. Um, It's a court document that basically allows her to live at home while she's on trial. Uh, And then 
randomly decided that signing the bond legitimized the charges, and so she tried to rescind her signature. So she actually kind of walked herself into a trap with these magic potions and you know magic words because she decided that signing that bond legitimized her charges. So she tried to re uh, redact it, even though that would mean she would have to go to prison while awaiting trial. Now, both the judge and her counsel at this point tried to get her psychiatric evaluation because that's a pretty nuts thing to do. Uh, she refused several times. Uh, she finally agreed to go in, but she never showed up. So I don't want to be insensitive. It is possible that Sharon Phillips has some real psychiatric problems that do need to be treated. But the problem is the way that these um, problems are manifesting themselves and the fact that she's just refusing help at every single angle. Well, my phone is telling me to go to sleep, guys, but we are podcasting on. So in addition to refusing psychiatric help, she also, for most of her trial, refused the help of her counsel. It was actually not until she was found guilty that she asked to speak to Mrs. and then she paused and the judge actually had to fill in the name of her counsel. She had sought their help and, you know, accepted their help so little that she actually couldn't remember her lawyer's name. Ooh, brief pause here. I edited it out because it was terrifying, but an Amber Alert just came through on my iPhone, and I learned that it comes through with a tornado siren-like sound. So that's something interesting to know. Back to Sharon Phillips. So Sharon Phillips refused help. She refused psychiatric evaluation. At one point during the trial, she sent apology letters to her victims, but she didn't actually seem at all sorry in court because she continued with antics like sending the judge a copy of her indictment with the words, except for value, return for set off settlement and closure stamped on it. Finally, at the last minute, she tried to file an affidavit of discharge, removing herself from the case and replacing her with the readily marketable asset version of herself that she believed the federal government held through her birth certificate. She also argued that a jury of U.S. citizens could never be a jury of her peers. Um, as many of you know, you are entitled to a jury of your peers by law. Um, and her argument was that because they were U.S. citizens, they could never be her peers. At one point, the judge actually told her, I hesitate to rank your statements in order of just how bizarre they are. Now, it's easy to see this as a victimless crime because sovereigns generally aren't dangerous, which makes them a step down from our other crazies we've discussed. And they're really not physical fighters or you know, bunker-owning gun nuts. They're what SPLC calls paper terrorists because they file bogus liens, fake tax forms, bad lawsuits, and basically drown the government they hate so much in paper. This is what Scientology could be referred to as if they didn't actually harm people, which, guys, they do. But sovereign citizens also lie, cheat, and try to ruin the credit and records of other people. And that comes with consequences, often felt by the victims of these sovereigns. Uh, and whether they needed to feel harm or not under this federal code, Sharon's victims suffered some real financial problems. And many of them only discovered these liens when they went to make some sort of big financial move. Um, for example, one of them was trying to finance a home and they discovered a massive debt on their record. Now, all in all, this was a pretty easy case for the jury to decide. While they were deliberating, however, so in the time that the jury stepped out of the room, Sharon Phillips tried to enter an emergency appeal stating that she was beyond the jurisdiction of the court. She actually had to run to another floor of the courthouse to do this. 
But it was rejected, and the jury was ready in under three hours and convicted her on ten counts. That's ten, not twelve, because two of the people that she filed liens against were actually uh, state police officers. They were not federal officers, and thus they didn't fall under the code. She was sentenced eventually to seven years in prison, which seems small for ten counts, but it's pretty high in terms of jail time sovereign citizens have faced. Sharon Phillips is arguably not a danger to society, so we could argue about whether she should be in prison or not, but she will serve a fair amount of time there. And her attorney, when questioned after the verdict, did bring up some points that really do garner sympathy for Sharon. Remember, all of this starts for Sharon after the death of one brother, the arrest of another, and the arrest of her parents. And I think that she and her boyfriend, uh, the NBA pl player and the father of her son, had broken up at the time and were not together anymore. So she didn't have that influence in her life. She was a single mom. So she's a single mom. Her whole family has just completely fallen apart. And her attorney said, I think this is a case of people feeling powerless against a huge force, and they choose to react to it in a way that makes them feel more powerful. The sovereign citizen thing is just a vehicle for these people to self-destruct. Is Sharon a danger to society? Are the liens enough to send someone to prison for seven to eight years? Obviously, she's not a criminal. She has not spent her life engaging in criminal conduct. She's not a drug dealer. She's not a bank robber. She's not a fraudster. She's a misguided individual. Now, I don't know that I'd agree that she's not a criminal and not a fraudster, but I do really get her lawyer's point that if you're at a point where you're feeling that helpless in the world, that everyone around you is crashing down, that you are being left completely alone, and remember her parents were into these ideas as well, so she already has this kind of roiling in her brain, it starts to feel like a way to take control of your life. So you can say, I may be completely out of control here in everything that's happening around me, but I can literally take myself out of the hands of the government and be completely in control of myself. And when you think about it that way, it's really easy to feel sorry for Sharon Phillips, a lot easier than finding sympathy for our Westboro Baptist or our Scientology miscreants, and probably right up there with finding sympathy for our you know, heat of passion spouse killer with the, the dead son from a few weeks ago. But it is a good reminder that these sort of crazy beliefs, even if they're not abusive, even if it's totally understandable about where they're coming from, need to be checked and they need to be checked early because they can completely wreck your life. They can lead you down pathways where you end up somewhere you never thought that you were going to go. I'm sure that Sharon Phillips had no concept when she started all of this that she was going to end up spending seven years of her life in federal prison. And it's a good lesson for all of us that when we hit a point where things are spiraling, it is so much better to ask for help than to grasp onto these things that are just illusions of things that will help you. So somehow we've ended up in the Mr. Rogers Life Lessons wrap-up part of this episode, but that is the end of our episode for this week. So remember to email me at tortsillustratedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions you want answered on an episode or just to tell me how much you hate this podcast. Remember to go on iTunes and SoundCloud, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because that gets me more listens. And I'm a selfish gal who wants more listens. And remember, guys, don't join cults.
And don't fight the law, because the law always wins. So, in the end, when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me.